Inside 20 is brought to you by Traditional Bow Hunters of Georgia. Head on over to tradbowga.com for more info. Inside 20 is a separate entity from our sponsors. The information shared during each podcast are the beliefs of Inside 20 Associates and the guests participating. On Saturday, February 25th, the Central Zone shoot for 2023 will take place. And any of you TBG members that hadn't planned to go yet, you need to plan. If you're not a TBG member, you need to go. It's going to be at 1460 Old Noonan Road, Carrollton, Georgia. There'll be free primitive camping. Uh, that can be in tents. If you don't want to sleep in a tent, you want to sleep in a hammock, that's fine as well. No campers, though, of any type. We don't have power, so we'll just be primitive. Lunch will be available. It'll have burgers, hot dogs, and trimmings. The shoot fee is $10 per person. Donations are accepted for lunch. Uh, shooting begins at 8 a.m. and it will end at 3 p.m. If you have any questions, you can call or text Seth Holland at 678 850-1280. We hope to see you there. Tonight, we have the pleasure of sitting down with a very experienced member of Traditional Bow Hunters of Georgia, a man that has hunted all over the world with a traditional bow and has made a career out of guiding others on trips of a lifetime. We would like to welcome no other than Mr. Jerry Russell. Welcome, Mr. Russell. I'm very glad that you were able to, to take the time out of your day to come on with us and speak. Um, just to Getting right into it, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how long you've been hunting traditional, and what got you into this type of hunting, uh, and then also what do you do full-time professionally? Uh, professionally speaking, at present, I guess for the last 10 to 12 years, I've been a, a hunting and fishing guide. Um, I guide primarily in Georgia for um uh, all the big game species from bear, turkey, deer, hogs, alligator, things like that. And then I do a, a tremendous amount of fishing and boat fishing as well. Mostly in the northern half of the state. Um, really enjoy that. Prior to that, I was a fireman for 31 years, retired a battalion chief off the department off the south side of Atlanta. Um, as far as, uh, I've been bow hunting for, Lord, close to 50 years. Um, always shot traditional. I've never shot any other type of weapon. Um, I do. I've shot guns back in the early '80s, but I've been strictly bow hunting since the mid '80s, and I've always shot traditional. So, um, what got me into the sport, I guess, was just the love of of archery, and never, never really. Uh, well, interesting. People say, "Why didn't you ever get into the compounds?" Well, they weren't legal. Um, that's how long I've been bow hunting. You weren't legal when I started bow hunting. Uh, Georgia being the last state to, to legalize them. And then, you know, I, I hunted with the four or five friends and my brother, and they all shot traditional. And we just never uh, gravitated to more modern types of archery. Um, and I can't imagine shooting anything other than my old black widow. That's awesome. How, how do you get started hunting and doing what you're doing now? I mean, as far as like getting into the the destination hunts and the guiding, you said you do that for a living. How'd you get started with that? Guiding started um, as just something that I've always done. I, I, I did it for a living, in quotations, over the last 12, 10 or 12 years since I retired from the fire service. 
Um, but I always got it. It seemed like I always had somebody. Um, much as I love the adventure myself, I raised kids that were bow hunters. And then as they grew, grew, you know, away from my home, I, I, I just had a passion to just keep doing it, to seeing the new in somebody's eyes. So by alligator hunting or caribou hunting or hunting Africa, things like that, I get to see even experienced archers get to explore a whole new world over and over again. And kind of an addictive thing. Um, but as far as the destination hunting, I guess that would go all the way back to just really, really young childhood. Probably eight to 10 years old, I was an avid reader. And uh, given that my love of the outdoors was fostered by my father, who passed away when I was 12, but I still stayed in the books. I love to read about exotic places and Fred Bear hunting the Little River Delta, things like that. Kind of cliche sounding, but that's how it started. It started a fire inside of me. And even though I didn't start that destination hunting for a long time, it always burned inside of me. And then uh, I guess around 30 years old, I just kind of looked around me one day and I'd hunted Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. And I, I said, man, I, what am I doing? You know, it, I've got the passion. Why am I not doing it? And it took off from there. And it, it uh, kind of went crazy. <laughs> I jumped the American West. Most people hunt Colorado or Wyoming first. I jumped straight to Alaska. And I started with a number of solo hunts up there for caribou and uh, got really addicted to chasing those caribou bulls um, out on the tundra and did that for a long time. And then it just, it just went crazy from there. Then I went across Canada, hunted most of Canada, uh, then on to uh, several countries in Africa, um, and then as, as recently as Australia, just a couple of months ago. Um, it, the, the, I don't know. It, everybody's got a different passion, and what exotic means to me may not mean exotic to another, but to me, it's it's so much more than hunting. It's the cultures. I really love the, the different types of people that I've met around the world, um, the different types of hunting and strategies that are employed around the world. Um, and I don't think that passion will ever die in me. That's perfect. <laughs> Man, that uh, Alaska caribou just that, that sounds like such a dream. I'm sure that was one of your favorites. <laughs> uh, I guess if I had to do one <clears throat> A distance or a way hunt, it would probably be caribou. Um, I think I've done it <clears throat> as best I can remember about 14 times. Um, I, like I said earlier, my first trip was solo. I had no idea what I was doing. I was so out of my league up there <laughs> um, because the terrain, the weather, everything is just so much more intense and dangerous. Um, but I managed to survive those first couple of trips. Um, had some really cool uh, encounters with grizzlies and brown bears and on Kodiak Island. Um, and then when I took my first caribou, I, I said, this is, this is not good. I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to stop this now. And it was 14 trip later before I could, I said, I, I've got to stop because there's so many other places in the world that I want to see. Um, but I did manage to shoot a lot of really, really good bulls over the years. And hunting with some great hunters up there, some really, really good traditional archers. 
Jerry, can you share that story about that the biggest caribou that you were uh, blessed to to take in Alaska, and just go through that high level about how that hunt unfolded? Yep, that was um, somewhere. Let's see, I think around two hundred uh, two thousand and six, and I was hunting with a a buddy that had never shot traditional in his life. Um, a, a friend of mine named David Lepley. He uh, asked him, I was a fireman at the time. I said, hey, buddy, you want to go hunt? And he goes, sure. I said, well, you got to shoot a trad bow. He said, well, what's a trad bow? <laughs> That's where that story started. I literally helped him get set up on a bow, and we started hunting together, and we actually formed a company, an irrigation, like a lawn sprinkler company on the south side of Atlanta that funded our hunts all over the world. And uh, he was a hard, hard-working no nonsense guy never complained, which is really important when you're hunting Alaska. You got to have somebody that's pretty hardcore. They can pack a load of meat, you know, in grizzly infested tundra without complaining. And he was that guy. But anyway, we hunted together on that particular hunt. We had to climb over a mountain range and then probably, probably traverse about five miles of, of tundra to get to the caribou because where we had landed, there just were no bulls there. And, uh, I was shadowing, which was could possibly have been a top three or four caribou in the world, and I knew it. I knew I was looking at a 420-inch bull, which that was always my goal as a child, just to break the 400-inch barrier. <clears throat> and to put that in perspective, it's very, very, very difficult to do, and it's only been done four or five times in the last 50 to 60 years with a traditional bow. So I shadowed this bull for two days and got as close as about 40 yards from him and passed on multiple, multiple Pope and Young bulls that day. And at the, towards the end of that day, I, I said, okay, I'll put him to bed and then I'll just head back to camp, which was, you know, half a dozen miles away. I came upon David and he said, hey, there's a giant bull in this valley over here. I said, well, he's not big enough for me because I've got my eyes on this giant over here. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll fail before I'll shoot something smaller. He said, well, do me a favor, come take a look. So we glassed from about a mile, a mile and a half away, and I said, that bull will do. <laughs> and uh, it was absolute, just a giant bull. And he was uh, in a really, really difficult spot to stalk, almost impossible. And it required us to crawl on our bellies with zero cover for, it seems like a half a mile to get into range. And then when, as I approached, you know, a possible shooting range, a river appears in the tundra right in front of us. The bull's laying on one side. I, I'm on this side. Um, to make matter or to make the story as short as possible, I just I knew it was going to be a long shot. I knew it was going to be very difficult. So I laid a second arrow out in front of me. I raised to my knees. He starts to come up out of his slumber, and I arch a shot across that river. I don't don't really remember how far it was, but it was it was a long ways. I hit the bull low in the chest, and he sprang to his feet. I, I popped another arrow on the string, and he took off at a full run. Well, I knew he was wounded, and I knew if he got away, the grizzlies or the brownies would get him that night. So I said, I have nothing to lose. So I took what was an, both an amazing and an absolute lucky shot, I would say, in the 50-yard range. But again, he's already wounded, so I have nothing to lose. Um, and the arrow took him just perfect right behind the shoulder, and he just went a few yards. I remember walking up to that bull and I said, you know, this was, I think, my 13th trip or 12th trip. When we walked up to the bull, David kind of 
I think he knew the moment was so special. He just kind of stood back and let me approach it. And I was just in awe of it. Um, not just because it was big, but it was the end of a journey for me. I knew that was it, that I had achieved the 400 inch um, bull. And sure enough, um, he, he, he scored, ended up scoring 402 inches um, and had to be left behind because I couldn't cut his skull um, to bring the, the rack back. So I had to leave him for the drying period. And a friend flew up, was an official scorer and scored him. And turns out he was the biggest in the biennial period of Pope and Young. So I didn't even have to transport him back. Pope and Young took care of everything. They flew them out to Pennsylvania for their for the Pope and Young Convention, flew us up there. And it was really neat because he was one of the biggest of the 29 species of big game um, in the world during that scoring period. So it was, that was kind of a cool deal. Um, it's actually the only animal I've ever had scored for Pope and Young. What a victory, man. That's, <laughs> that is a, that is an amazing story. I, I was kind of imagining how much, I guess, mental control you have to have at that moment to not look at that animal's rack, to not think too much, to, you know, to, to just execute. And, um, you know, I, I can only imagine the level of, of work, uh, not to mention the money that went into, to, you know, just getting there. And you've got to, you know, take all that out of, off the table and just focus on making a good shot. Were you shooting your Black Widow at the time? Yep, same Black Widow I've shot for about a quarter century. Um, that bow's been around the world with me. And I did give it a little break, fell in love with another Black Widow, and it fell off of a truck in Canada on a bear hunt. <laughs> so and it's still in Canada somewhere. So I came back to it, and I've, I've shot it for an additional five years. And I guess I'll shoot it the day I die. Um, I actually took a buffalo and a scrub bull with it in Australia with, a, with a, a, an additional set of limbs, a 70-pound 70, 70 set of limbs. So that bow's just always been there. It feels good in the hand. And I've never been one to really flirt and bounce around the bows. And I, I'm really not that good, good with archery to be moving from bow to bow. Um, I, I shoot something, that bow right there, when it comes up, I'm, I'm pretty confident I'm going to hit what I'm aiming at. I'd say so. That's, that's, man, congratulations on, on that caribou. And I know you like to hunt pigs uh, down here. That's Would you say that's probably one of your more favorite animals to hunt down south here in Georgia? I enjoy pig hunting a lot. Um, I'm not really a pig hunter. Like I'm not one that's going to go to a WMA and chase them. I do enjoy it. Um, but I'm really passionate about hunting giant boars. And most of that entails hunting at night because the pigs that I like to chase, I like to stay in the four to seven year old range on these pigs. And I'm talking giant hogs. I consider them a different species. And those that have hunted them successfully, pressured hogs know what I'm talking about when I say they're not the same species. A 150 pound pig, and a 375-pound pig that survived five to seven hunting seasons are different species altogether. There's just simply no way to compare the two. Interesting. What could you tell us the story about the toughest boar hog that you've ever hunted? Um, a lot of people that are listening to this podcast have probably heard the story of Kong. Um, he, he's particularly special. I don't think that I'll ever. I'm not sure that I'll ever find one that can match 
um, this story, but um, it started, I think, in 2012. I got a, a call from a professional, um, like a nuisance animal trapper, that he had two hogs that he needed to, to get rid of, and they were really big. He had no idea how to do it. He said, I, I know your reputation for chasing these things. How do I do it? I said, it's really not that difficult. And I showed him how to set up bait sites and how to not pressure them and, you know, how to do it, everything. Well, luck, these pigs had not been hunted in about a year. They had been pressured before that, but they were really big hogs, well in excess of 400 pounds, both of them. And uh, they were basically terrorizing an area just south of Atlanta. And he managed to shoot one, but two hunters counted down and they both shot the same pig. Well, the one that survived, we named Kong. He hunted him, I think, about another six months. Unsuccessfully, never saw it again. He said, this thing is just, it's like, it. he said, he described, he said, it's like hunting a human being. It knows everything that we're doing. I, he said, if you want it, you can have it. I said, sure, I'll take it. And, you know, with, with my luck with these pigs over the years, I said, well, I'll make short work of this dude. Well, I had no idea that this pig was going to put old Jerry in his place. Um, the story's in has is, is been written up in a couple of magazines. So for those that want the long version, can find it. It's um, I believe it's called The Hunt for Kong. If you Google that, you'll find it. But anyway, um, as briefly as I can describe it, we I started hunting this pig. I set baits for him, and I knew he was in the area. He was the only pig that that lived on this piece of property. When I set the baits out, he wouldn't come to the baits. I said, well, that's strange. So, I mean, I'm talking, I would I would spice them with apples and pears and everything. Wouldn't touch them. So I said, well, let me, let me see what's going on. I'll put out some trail cameras. I couldn't get him on a trail camera. I was like, what is going on here? Well, one day I'm following his tracks down a sandy creek, a real steep bank creek. And I see that he's approaching the bait and the camera. I said, well, this is good. I'm, I'm going to get him finally on camera. I followed his tracks. They stopped. You can tell he milled around and he went around the bait and around the camera, got back in the creek and carried on. Now I know what I'm up against. He's, this, this pig is nearly unkillable. It took me uh, at least eight to 10 months, maybe longer to even get him on a trail camera. I ended up blanketing the area with so many trail cameras that he couldn't avoid them anymore. So finally, his violent reactions when one would go off um, died down. And I saw what, when I first saw him on camera, I said, this is not possible. A pig just can't get this big in the wild. Um, so never could get him to come to the bait. So I finally decided what I need to do is hide the bait. So I hoisted the baits 20 feet up into the trees, up into the canopy. In a year, year and a half later, he finally started coming to the baits. And um, he would only move between usually around 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., never outside of that time period. And it became what I guess you could, would describe as a, an obsession with me to try to kill this pig. So I would go in there at dark, strap myself to a tree, and I would hunt all night. And again, long story short, two and a half years goes by. I've hunted this pig. I've had him in very close proximity in pitch darkness probably 15 times but he would never approach a bait without going downwind and he would bust me every time so i started positioning the baits where he couldn't circle deep deep ravines things like that when i would do that he just simply wouldn't come in 
I could hear him breathing in the distance, but he would never approach. Um, and the first time I actually saw him was the wind just was perfect that night. And I heard something right underneath me. It's pitch black now. And I've got rheostat lights, um, red lights and green lights. I see this giant black hole beneath me. It's like, it looks like the size of a car. And I said, what, what am I looking at here? And I see these two white discs. What I didn't realize was this black hole I'm looking at is his back. And when I dialed up, I started trying to dial up the light. He would just, he just slid out to the side. And the uh, one thing I forgot to mention was every time this pig would come in and commit to getting in a position nearly to shoot, he would almost always stand for one hour without moving. I didn't think that was possible for an animal of that girth that could just stand there. Um, he, and then if he, when he did see or uh, smell me or, or sense that I was there, he would let off these, let out roars. I've never heard a pig make this noise, but I, I, I can't describe it, but it's, it's just a deafening roar. It just makes your skin crawl. And then when I would spook him like that, he would disappear for weeks at a time, six to eight weeks before he would come back. He would never reappear at that same bait. The bait would have to be moved a half mile or so. But the night that I did get him, he came in and he circled, but he made a, the, the big mistake of circling only maybe five feet from the base of my tree, which put him so close that my scent string went over his back. He continued his circle. And then I heard him let out just almost like a, like a moan or a sigh. And the, and I said, he's going to come in now. He, he feels relaxed. He walked in. I dialed up the red light. And I was just, it was overwhelming to have a pig because he ended up weighing 507 pounds. But he was four yards from me. And I was just above him, just a couple of feet. Um, and he had a mud spot right behind his shoulder, right where that arrow should go. And I was able to put the arrow right in there. But I will say, and I'll wrap this in the story. As you, if you ever do come upon that story and you read it, focus on what this pig meant to me. Because when I had that opportunity to pull back, he stood there for five to seven minutes and I was destroyed with the fact that I was going to have to kill him because somebody else had discovered he was there and they were gun hunting him. He was going to get shot at sooner or later. But I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. I've chased whitetails and other animals for years at a time. But this pig, this hog, had just this incredible fascination for me. And it was difficult to shoot him that night. I won't, I won't kid about it. It, it really was. Um, arrow was perfect. Um, he ran just, to, you know, maybe 80 yards or so. And I had a string tracker in him. And then I put my dog, my blood tracking dog on him, even though I knew he was dead. And I had brought my son in because I wanted my son to be a part of the experience. And just to approach him at that point, um, uh, it was overwhelming. I mean, it was just, ooh, it still kind of gives me a chill to think about him. Gosh, it's been today, actually, is seven years ago today that I shot him, February 15th. Wow. That's amazing. What a story, man. That's, I definitely relate to the to the passion and as you were talking about how he would circle down when you think of mature does or mature bucks but it sounds a little different than that the fact that that he would you know sense you at a spot and then he just wouldn't come back there he'd say, he'd say i mean that that's a trademark of a, of a smart animal 
and uh, kudos to you for sticking with it that long. And man, that's amazing. Yeah, I just encourage the listeners to find that story because it's the story paints a much much better picture of of just it really says what hunting, whether you're bow hunting or whatever, what it what hunting is about, what it's supposed to feel like not just the victory, not just the horns or the tusk or the whatever. It's what it's supposed to feel like when you finally get that chance on an animal like that. It's supposed to feel exhilarating, but it's supposed to feel sad too. At the same exact time, at least on an animal that you've put that that kind of effort into. And that is really just kind of kicked your butt for three, because it was three years. I hunted that, that one pig for three years. Um, and to this day, I've chased some giants before that and a bunch of giants after that, but none of them have been the same. Wow. Well, that, that I thought the first story was, was awesome. That, that's a pretty awesome story, too. So what would you say is your, has been your most memorable hunt? That would be that. that that's, a, that's a pretty easy answer right there, the hunt for Kong. Um, that caribou hunt was pretty pretty special, too. Uh, you know, I've chased some really big whitetails for a couple of years and, and got those. Um, you know, I think when I chase an animal that I've never chased before, that I, I wouldn't say that it's more special, but it's, it's exhilarating. It almost brings the youth back. Um, like when you were 12 years old and you got your first deer or, or 14 when I killed my first bear, <clears throat> those, those feelings comes back when you, when you're hunting an animal. I can back back up just a little bit and say that I know every sight, every sound, every smell in the southern U.S. and most of eastern Canada. I know what everything is because I've been in the woods for, you know, almost 60 years. But when you go to a foreign country and you're out of your element, I like being kind of off my off balance a little bit. Like <laughs> just a super side, a super quick side story here hunting Africa the first time. It starts to get daylight. I'm in this hide by myself, a blind, and I hear a growling sound. And it's getting closer and closer. It's growling louder and louder. And it sounds like a mid-sized cat. And I'm thinking, what? what's coming at me, you know, in the dark? And as it gets daylight, it's a dove. I'm talking a little bird. <laughs> My goodness. And I had to chuckle because I'm like, here's the, here's the big hunter, and I don't know a dove sound. <laughs> so I like being out of my element like that. I, I really do like that. Um, another instance of that was in most countries that you hunt in Africa, you have to have a, a, a pH with you or, or a game spotter, a government game spotter. Well, I've always been lucky enough to hunt places where they don't really require that. Well, one time I said, I want to be completely alone. It was the wildest hunt I've ever been on, wildest meaning wildest there were animals there that could definitely do you in lions, Cape Buffalo, things like that. Well, this pH said, all right, we're not wild enough for you. And he tells the other pH, just take him to the swamp. And they took me into the middle of this river swamp. And he said, don't go near the water because the hippos will kill you. And I said, okay, you only have to tell me that one time. But that was so cool for me because he said, when you're done, get down out of the stand because I was hunting bush buck out of a tree stand. He said, get out of the stand and just walk up this road. Well, I'm walking up that road and I'm deep in Zimbabwe. I mean, I'm hours from the nearest blacktop road. I'm walking that road and 
and I, I kind of chuckled myself. I said, I hear something coming, coming from left to right. It's going to step out in the road. I said, now that could be a kudu. It could be an eland and tala, whatever. I said, but it could be a lion, a leopard, a cape buffalo. And I, and I said, it's almost like electricity in the air. And that's something I've never felt in the U.S. Um, a couple of times with close encounters with grizzlies and stuff like that, but I've never felt like, you know, I really need to watch my step in the U.S. Um, and most people would say they don't want to be in that environment, but I, I, I literally, I thrive on it. I love that stuff. I like being where I'm not apex, the apex predator necessarily, and also where I'm, I still have something to learn because um, you don't get that you know much when you hunt Georgia for 50 years. I still love Georgia. Don't get me wrong. I love hunting Georgia, but I, I certainly love the more exotic uh, locations too. And the experiences that you've had over the years, having the opportunity to hunt all these different places that, like you said, most people don't, um, it just it gives you a whole different perspective. And so I'm not going to be the bearer of uh, negativity with my question, but I do have to ask this. Has there been, like you have had to pick one, right, of the biggest heartbreak hunt that you've had uh, and what was that story? And then how did you bounce back from just a, a mental game after the fact? You know, there's been some really big whitetails that I've, uh, I've hunted over the years. And, you know, you get a connection with those. They're, it's pretty easy to get a connection with a deer that you hunt three years. I do remember hunting uh, and having everything come together. One of those things, hunting in the middle of a maybe a five-year-old clear cut, and it's just a small two-acre patch of trees. And it's one of those things that after four or five or six years of hunting that property, I knew the day to be there. And there was just a tremendous whitetail that I was hunting. And as daylight came that morning, I went up a climber that particular morning. Daylight came, I had three scrapes right at my feet, and they were they were smoking hot. They had just appeared the day before, I guess. And it's just one of those things where everything just worked. I mean, it was everything worked. The wind was perfect. A couple of does come in, hit the scrapes, and I said, he's going to be here in a minute. And sure enough, here he comes. And it was just a, an absolute giant of a whitetail. Gave me an absolutely simple shot, and I just blew it. There was this tiny twig over the lungs, and my brain registered, miss it, then I should have just shot it, and I hit him too far back. You know, a miss has never really bothered me. That's on me. But when I hit him and I don't recover an animal like that, I just feel like I've just... I've just really, really blown it. Not for me, but for that animal. Because they deserve, they deserve for me to be better. If I'm going to do that, if I'm going to try to take their lives, I, I really, when I, if I ever blow it, and it's happened a couple of times to me, more than a couple of times. But a hunt like that where everything goes perfect, um, and it's a buck you've got a lot of history with. And I looked for that deer for, I think, seven days. We never found him. I found four or five other bucks that other people had lost. Um, but that was before, that was a long time ago. That was before blood dogs were so pre prevalent. And um, I didn't particularly, I've had a blood dog for many years, but I didn't have one at that time and we were unable to recover it. So that one still stings. And that's, gosh, that's been 30 years ago. Yeah, it's tough. But I guess now you, even after the fact, you're going to take that and what you learned and uh, just try to adjust and impl implement those uh, those tactics going forward. So 
you you decrease hopefully the likelihood of that happening again even though there's a high likelihood of it um, in any hunting scenario right yeah that's right you, if you don't learn from mistakes like that you're you're absolutely bound to to make them occur in your life again um, I've never been one that really got super jacked up at the shot um, anybody can miss I miss just like everybody does but it's it's generally or generally not from excitement with me it's just something you know I think he's you know I think that he's 16 yards and turns out he's I'm, I'm higher than I expected and he's 21 so I shoot you know just under him or something like that I'm not one of those guys that's going to panic um, on a shot what are your average yardage from a shot perspective when you when you're hunting not target practice if I could shoot every animal that I shoot, because I'm a high, I hunt very, very high in a tree. As far as traditional archers go, um, y'all, y'all know Al Chapman. He he won't even get in my stands. He he says they give him a nosebleed. Um, <laughs> but I like the my deer and my bear to be right at 14 yards. That's a magic number because it's an easy shot, but it also gives you it gives you a good shot angle. So you're going to get bilateral damage. You're going to cross that animal instead of going down through it. Because a single lung, like on a bear and things like that, they just go forever. But I like 14 yards. It's just it's hard to miss at 14 yards. And I don't think I would shoot. Maybe I've shot deer out to the mid 30s, but I, I, I don't think I'd ever do that again. Um, I don't really like to shoot over about 22 to 23 yards. Um, I'm one of those guys that knows that whatever you can do. And this is this is advice that I give any archer that's listening out there. If you're deadly on a 3D range, whatever that range is, cut it down to 60%, and that's your probably your effective range on, on a live animal. I that's I completely agree. That's great advice. I think that going into that, uh, you you set yourself up a little bit better. Um, and, and sometimes it's it is hard to see something that's further out than what you can shoot at when you when you hunt with a traditional bow. But at least at that point, you're not trying to make some kind of offhand mistake and saying oh i'm just gonna i'm gonna let one go when you've told yourself or if you hadn't told yourself what your limitations are uh, leading up to your hunting season so i'll ask this real quick uh, from a standpoint as uh, as it pertains to um, getting kids whether that be your own or other kids that you've had opportunity to influence in your life what are some things that you felt like worked to to bring in uh, somebody new into into hunting especially like a, a younger kid or a teenager and then uh, what are some things that maybe you would have done different uh, to just kind of get them maybe hooked and I know everybody chooses their own path but what are some influences that you felt like worked well and, and what might have not I think for for children um, first of all I would say don't don't even consider trying to introduce a child a young child in traditional archery hunting that's that the, the, the chances that success versus failure are so high that's a bad choice. Um, it, it, all of my children started with compound bows. Um, uh, my daughters, uh, you know, daughters kind of, they'll kind of move out of hunting a little earlier than, than sons will. But my daughters both shot compound bows. I had one daughter that was an absolute slayer. And the one that just really didn't care that much for hunting, saw that early on. She loved to go, but she didn't want to shoot anything. And that was great. Uh, my son uh, is still a really really good hunter but he started with a compound um hunted africa with me my daughter hunted africa with me 
Um, but I think the if I were going to say one thing to a person that had never hunted and they're going to try to introduce a child is try to try to find some social events, whether it be rabbit hunting, squirrel hunting, duck hunting when it's not cold, um, a pheasant tower shoot, and 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 probably one of the best things I did this with my son. I didn't do it with my daughters, and I kind of regret that. But with my son, I introduced him to traditional archery at about that age of 12. He started shooting a recurve at 11 or 12. But I got him into shooting 3D shoots. That exposes him not only to the fun of the event, but also to just some really high-quality people. Um, that's where I've met Al Chapman and Jeff Hampton. And, God, the, the list, it just it goes on and on. Um, his exposure to those people, I think, is far beyond hunting or shooting a bow and arrow. It's, it's just quality people. And that's hard to come by, to, to get to an event where every single person there is just a quality human being. That's what you get with those traditional archery shoots. Um, we shot a little bit at South Georgia traditional primitive, but a whole lot at North Georgia um, traditional over in Gainesville, Georgia. And my son, to this day, he has countless friends that he's encountered there, both young and old. Um, we hunt and fish with maybe a dozen people to this day that he bent. Um, and uh, that's it. Social social exposure to hunting is much better than sitting in a tree stand chasing deer. Deer will come along when the time comes. But I think if you make the mistake of getting a, a seven or eight-year-old and they're trying to sit quietly and listen for a deer, that that's not, you know, wasn't for me. Um, but to watch a kid chase rabbits or shoot pheasants or something like that, that that's, that's where you see the glows, you know, start to burn in, in their hearts and in their eyes. They have a lot of fun, and I think it imprints on them a lot better than trying to shoot a deer, especially if it's cold. Cold can wreck a, you know, a child's first exposures to hunting. So keep them warm and, and keep them laughing. We've hosted a lot of events over the years, rabbit hunting, pheasant hunts with, with TBG. Um, and to see those hunts, if if you were never a part of them, we would have 30 or 30 kids out there just having the time of their lives, trying not to shoot each other. <laughs> it was like herding cats, to, but we had a great time. We had coon shoots, pheasant shoots, uh, quail shoots. Or, uh, it, it was it was a blast. So that's how you, in my opinion, how you can do it with a child. That's great advice. I completely I see that in something it'll help increase the likelihood of it sticking and being something that they find a passion in as well. And plus they also build memories that whether they, I'm sure they, they do it the rest of their life or something that they just did with you to spend time with you or um, any uh, father figure or mom or uncle or cousin, whoever that is, that's introducing them. I'm sure that they'll remember that regardless. And I completely agree. The shoots, uh, the 3D shoots are a great time. Unfortunately, I didn't really get into those until probably about three to four years ago. Went to my first TBG shoot. Uh, I neglected it just from a time and life aspect. It was, you know, off season, so other things were going on. Um, but I, I cannot preach uh, enough to what you just said. That if anybody that is in Georgia and interested in going to some of these shoots, I highly recommend it. Uh, the next one is going to be uh, in central, the central zone shoot on the 25th of, of February, that Saturday. The state shoot takes place in May. That's a, a great time with a ton of people. It's continuing to grow year after year. And like you said, you get to not only have a good time walking around and shooting and socializing 
and meet new people, but just the type of people that you meet and the the type of personalities, it's it, it is highly worth the investment of time. Highly worth it. Certainly is. Now, for you, has there been any mentors in your life or current mentors that have really just influenced you in in your hunting profession, your your guiding, your, your life in general as it relates to hunting or just traditional archery? You know, most people can say can point to one or two people in their lives that inspired them. Mine came from books. Um, my father died at a very young age. He was an extremely accomplished traditional archer. But he died so young, I really don't even remember him. I, I can almost, you know, kind of remember a couple of hunts with him. Um, but I was just so young. Um, but I got enough from, uh, of the love of the sport to, to hook into the bow hunting aspect of it. So I guess that triggered there. Um, but I really don't have any body. I hunted alone a tremendous amount of time. The TBG, that gang, all those people that seemed to know each other, I didn't know any of those guys until maybe 15 years ago. I hunted with a couple of friends and my brother. We were all traditional archers, and I really didn't know a whole lot of trad guys beyond that. Um, and I, I wandered into that TBG, uh, Traditional Hunters of Georgia group for my son's sake. Um, but it turns out it was just as much benefit to me. Um, I have just a huge number of, of great friends al chapman and i everybody knows al chapman and if you don't well that's on you <laughs> you've missed out but uh al and i became just dear friends um and there's a pile of other guys but al and i gosh it's not unusual for me and him to pig or deer hunt you know several times a month um i've, I've hunted africa with him i've hunted canada with him um i was a part of his a uh, big primitive bow experience that he went through this past year, which is one of the greatest memories, uh, or the fondest memories I'll ever have, where he was trying to kill all Georgia's big five species with a primitive bow that he made himself, arrows, uh, uh, stone points, and everything. And he was successful in that endeavor. Um, but no, no one mentor. I'd, I'd love to say it's one guy, but if I if I said it, it would be. And I know this is really cliche, but it'd be Fred Bear, because as a kid. That's where I latched on. That's where the fire started. Bows on the Little River Delta, that that book, a little bit of Howard Hill stuff. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when I was a little kid, and I really didn't dream that I'd ever be able to go to these places, but I worked really hard um, to, to go. Um, I go on a lot of these crazy wild hunts on a budget. I mean, I you know, I was a fireman. Yeah, I mean, I had a business that paid for a lot of those trips, but Still, somebody had to dig those ditches for that irrigation company, and that was me. Um, so the fire started as a child in books, and then it, it, it still burns to this day. I love it. Your story is inspirational, Jerry, and I completely agree. Everybody that you listed and the men that you shared are all wonderful people to surround yourself with uh, and to make you a better person. I promise you that. And anybody that's just now listening for the first time and you want to learn more about Al Chapman and the story that Jerry just hinted at, uh, number six episode, we had the opportunity to sit down with Al and it is, it is one I highly recommend you listen to next if you have not already listened to it. My next question for you, Jerry, is 
what is something that you would say to somebody new coming into traditional archery or maybe they just started or want to try it out what is was something you would say in regards to one word of advice or some type of direction that you would give them i'll, I'll stick to the hunting side of or aspect of it because that's that's kind of my specialty um I'm not the guy to talk to somebody about getting started in traditional archery because I'm so unorthodox in my shooting style, <laughs> my equipment, that I'm probably not the, the anyone that's trying to lead anybody. But on the hunting side of it, I'm probably the guy or one of them. I would say this, that um, you, you don't have to have dreams to go to Africa. You don't have to have dreams to go to Australia to hunt. Um, not everybody wants to dream that big. But if you do, if you do, you can make it happen. You don't have to have a lifelong dream that never comes to fruition. If you want to go to Africa or if you want to go to Canada for caribou or Alaska for, for black bear, you can do it. There's a plan that you can write out for yourself that you can make it happen. If you, I, you know, I really hate to see people say one of these days, I've got a buddy, uh, he'll, he'll remain nameless, but when I see him, every time I see him, he says one of these days. Well, he's he's almost 70 now, and he still says one of these days. And it's always just kind of crushed me that he never really fought to make it happen because everyone can do it. And the dream doesn't have to be specifically, I mean, you know, exotic like that. An away hunt to you may be Kansas for Whitetail. And that's cool. That's really a neat thing. Um, everybody's got a different level of crazy and, you know, exotic hunts. It means a different thing to different people. Mine is just the wildest stuff you can come up with. Um, you know, just three months ago, I was walking lava flows hunting Asiatic buffalo. And that buffalo hunt for me, this is Jerry who's done a lot of really neat stuff like that, but that was the dream. That was the hunt of my lifetime was done either Cape Buffalo or Asiatic Buffalo, either in Africa or Australia. And it took, look at me, I'm 60 years old and I pulled it off. So if you have a dream, don't don't ever give up on it. Even if you get 60 or 70 years old, do it. Um, if it's too physical, take a step back, find one that's something similar and go and do it. Don't ever, ever, ever stop dreaming. Um, it, it's It's just something you owe it to yourself. I know kids can come along and they did for me. I raised the kids and, you know, when my son, he came along later in my life, he was still young. I said, I've got to go. I've got to go do these hunts. Um, obviously children and college and all those things can press into that, but there's always a way to squeeze a dream or two in when you're young. And then when you're financially able, you know, go for it. Just don't stop dreaming. It's great. It is. Life is too short. We'll put it off until, say, whenever you have time or the finances. You just got to start planning today. Can you share the yeah. the high level about that trip, the Cape Buffalo hunt, or anything that you think is uh, is some some takeaway uh, memories you'll never forget? I know the whole experience in general, but can you real quick share a little bit about that? You talk about the recent hunt that I did. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's uh, we did Australia. Cape Buffalo have gotten so, just so outrageously priced, and it's more of a canned experience. Um, so I didn't want that. I wanted absolute wild spot and stalk. So I went with a, um, 
a couple of friends, Chris Blaskowski out of uh, Montana. Um, he, he and I hunted together. Um, we were two on one. And then Pat Kelly was also along on the trip. And Pat, somebody I've hunted with before, he's been into my Canadian bear camp before. Um, uh, both of them are really, really good hunters. A very similar style, a similar passion for what I've had. Now, Pat had the luxury of having hunted Asiatic and Cape Buffalo before. Um, I had never seen it before, but to me, that was the wildest, most physically demanding hunt of my life. I was in really good shape, <laughs> and it almost killed me. Um, I could say this without any any measure of hold back on it. That was the hottest, other than when I stuck my head in an oven, I've never been that hot in my life. We had temperatures over 105 degrees every day. Um, that was air temperature and the ground temperature being on that lava rock. The, the rocks were so hot that when you would stalk, you had to have hard shell knee pads or it would burn you through your pants. I had blisters on the back of my hands just from touching the rock. So the, uh, the, uh, the, the flora and the fauna there will kill you. There's ants on everything that'll bite you. There's snakes in the, and the uh, escarpments that'll kill you, you know, like three steps in your dead. Um, so it was neat. That that was a good aspect of it. The beauty of that heat, though, was that it drove all the buffalo to the rivers every day. So it was just an incredibly target-rich environment. So the three of us took five buffalo. Um, I took a, a scrub bull, which was another one that was on my bucket list, which is basically a wild ox. Um, almost seven foot at the shoulder, weighed about 2,200 pounds, huge animals. So to ease in those things with a, with a little old bitty recurve bow and sling arrows, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, but it was, it was brutal. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd ever do that again unless my son wants to go back and then I would do it again in RV. But that was wow. my lifelong dream. I mean, uh, an entire lifetime of saying Buffalo. You know, I hunted everything all around it. I've seen Cape Buffalo when I was in Africa. And I said, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. And then we planned that hunt in 2019 and booked it. And then the world came to a stop. So we sat for a couple, two and a half years, three years, waiting on the hunt to come through. And it came through at the last minute. We jumped on a plane, went over there, and, and got it done. So five buff and, and one scrub bull. Saw kangaroos, all this, the cool stuff you think you would see. I saw crocodiles in the rivers. So when you go down to the river to cool off, you really paid attention to your surroundings, <laughs> you know, knowing that a salty could come up and take you because they take buffalo. So if it could eat a 2,000 pound buffalo, I'd be a snack to it. So you pay attention to stuff like that. Um, wow. But one, I'll, I'll give you one little quick story of how rugged that place is. I shot my buffalo, and when, it, when an animal hits the ground there, it triggers a response from an ant called a meat ant. Now, these ants are huge, um, like, say, three-quarters the length in, of your thumb. They boil out of the ground by the tens of thousands. I, I can only describe it as a, an event from an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and they run towards your animal. Well, I wasn't told this. <laughs> My buffalo hits the ground. We walk up to it, and we're going, all right, you got your buffalo. And the guide starts screaming, the P.H., he starts screaming, get me some brush, get me brush, leaves, limbs, anything that'll burn. Now, I don't know what he wants it for, but his voice told me that I needed to do what he was telling me to do and quick. 
So we ran and got a bunch of like sagebrush and things like that. He threw it all around the buffalo and he sets it on fire. And I look and there are tens of thousands of these ants running toward us. He said, if they get on the buffalo, we won't be able to get them off. We'll lose the buffalo. I, I can't describe how horrific this sight was. The minute he struck that match, they all turned around and ran away and went back underground. That was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I said, I said, well, you can't just beat them off. He said, no, once they get on the animal, he said, it's over. He said, there'll be millions of them. Um, and they move at such a, just a horrid speed. But um, example of the damage that they can do is we hung two back straps in a tree. And he said, we'll come back and get them or we'll cook them tonight. We came back, I'm going to think two or three hours later, the back straps had been completely consumed by ants. Now, this is a backstrap out of a 2,000-pound animal, and they were gone. There was nothing left. Wow. Golly. I mean, I, these, I, it, it, I'll never, ever forget that side of that, that horde of ants running at me. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, that is crazy. That's, that's nuts. I can't even imagine what that would look like. Yeah, the entire country is covered with ants. After a while, you know, you think you wouldn't sit down in a fire ant bed here, but if you sat on the ground there, you had ants on you all the time. And after about four days, you just didn't care anymore. Now, certain ants you did. There's another ant that clung to trees over log crossings over rivers because they knew animals would pass over that log. And if you bump that tree, it looked like a willow looking bush. The ants were the same color, but they hung in thick clusters. You didn't see them. But when you bump the cluster, the entire cluster would drop onto your body. Um, and, and they, they were kind of painful. Wow. Not a place Other that you'd want to have to sleep outside on the ground if you're forced to, it yeah, sounds like. Pretty, pretty hostile existence. But we saw the dingoes, the crocodiles, kangaroos, wallabies, all that stuff. It's pretty neat. And certainly one of the coolest things we saw was cave art that maybe nobody had ever seen, no European had ever seen before. Um, it was cave, uh, like cave drawings, uh, petroglyphs, I guess they call it, if I'm saying that correctly. And they depicted European settlers and missionaries coming in. Um, they had old muskets in the drawings and things like that. And we went under rock escarpments, and I'm talking rocks as big as houses. And if they faced a certain way and had a certain prevailing wind, they would use those as encampments. And you could tell people had camped there for hundreds of years. Well, I'm terrible at finding arrowheads. I found two in my entire life. All my travels, 60 years, I found two in the United States. I sat down, and they were five, six inches thick on the ground. Hundreds of, of uh, not arrow points, because they didn't have bows and arrows, but they had spear points. Spear points and, and rock knives, and, and they had flaked um, these spear points there for thousands of years, hundreds at least, and it was, it was six inches to a foot thick on the ground underneath it. And uh, really cool uh, drawings all over, depicting their, the spirits that would come down out of the escarpments and take the children. So you could, the PA or the professional hunter there was very well versed at reading these, and he could tell the stories. And he would tell you what they would say. It's pretty neat. Wow, what a trip! An absolute trip of a lifetime. Fascinating. That's an amazing experience. You got to do that and and, and share that with us too. I felt like I was there for a moment 
But now that you've done that, and that's say your bucket list trip out of all of them, is there any others that you have thought of since then that you're like, this is this is next for me on the docket? It may not happen in the next few years, but is there anything that has already has got you uh, your attention? Um, this year we may or may not. I've already got a group uh, going to Namibia. We may do that. I've done that several times. Um, I may or may not go on that. I'm not sure on that. I'm about 99% sure that we're going to do Hawaii for a goat hunt, a high mountain goat hunt. Um, that's certainly not a bucket list hunt, but it's something to do with some people, uh, professional bow hunter society guys that invited me on that. I guess if I had to say a hunt, I would probably go with mountain goat. Um, I know that the clock is ticking on that. Like hunted where the mountain goat's head is. Um, you know, that's where I, I shot all my big caribou in, in mountain hunting settings, most of them up in the mountains. And it is so physical. We would train for six months for those hunts and it would still just nearly kill you. The mountain goats are higher than that. Got several buddies, um, that, that have done the mountain goats several times. And I know at my age, I'm still pretty dang tough because I do a lot of high elevation bear hunting in Georgia. But I know that mountain gun hunt, that the clock is certainly ticking. I, I need to pull that off quickly if I'm going to try to do it. But that's always been kind of a, a big one for me, too. Really difficult to do, though, with a trad bow, if you think about it. I'm sure. I'm sure it's uh, it, already hard. And then to add that to it would be would be next level. Is that something that you would lean on somebody to be out there? Because I've, I've heard briefly some people that have gone on those hunts where you've got a guy that lives on the mountain right for like the week before to scout and would you do that or would you just do it your, yourself yeah unfortunately i i'm not aware of anywhere that you can mountain go hunt without somebody without a guide um you know alaska all your species that are very high are very dangerous they require a guide now that doesn't mean the guy's got to go up and say hey that's the one you want to shoot go get it right there but he has to be with you to make it legal um, and of course, Canada, a guide is required in, in every aspect, all, in all provinces. So, um, yeah, you would have, I would have to do, have to have at least help to get there. You know, you do not have to fly into high mountain lakes and, and things like that to get to them. Um, got a couple of connections out west that might make it possible um, to do it. But really, if I, if I could do it the way I want to do it, I want to do it in the most physically demanding, hellish environment. <laughs> I seem to be drawn to that environment, but uh, uh, that's how I'd want to do it. Probably Alaska or British Columbia, something like that. Tougher the better, right? Yeah, that's right. That's one of the things, that's what draws me to bear hunting in Georgia. Um, Love it. I could hunt them in cornfields. I could hunt them in lowlands. I don't have any interest whatsoever of shooting a bear like that. Um, shooting in those, that high mountain environment, you know, it's an hour pack in, hour and a half in, that's, I eat that stuff up. I don't even deer hunt now until almost November. I'm strictly bear hunting through September and October. Wow. It's amazing the, all the experiences that you've had and just the wisdom that you've been able to uh, just develop and, and uh, share with other people and and then being a part of those experiences with them i know it's impacted their life and just the uh the hour that you spent with us and all the experiences and memories that you shared i've truly enjoyed it uh, we're thankful that you were willing to do this with us and i know there will be a lot of people 
that hear this that uh, and get the same uh, joy out of listening to it uh, and just know that we're appreciative of the time that you've invested into into doing this tonight. Um, and we know that you've got a YouTube channel and then I don't know if you've got any other social media platforms that are based off your our website based off your your guiding services or any kind of content that you want to share. We'll make sure to post that. Uh, I don't know if verbally you want to share that right now. So everybody knows where to go to check that out. Yeah, our YouTube is Russell Outdoor Guides. That one's fun. It's non-commercial. I don't post any commercials on my stuff. If there's a commercial on that's YouTube, um, that's Russell Outdoor Guides. And I don't care what you do in the outdoors. You'll have some fun there from Alaska to pheasant hunting, bow fishing, fishing, pigs, deer, bear, hogs, alligators. There's a lot of neat stuff. Um, my website is russelloutdoorguides.com. And that covers everything in Georgia, Eastern Canada, and then an occasional hunt that we put together for folks. Um, like we've got a traditional archer group going to Africa, so things like that. But um, the, the the YouTube channel is it's a lot of fun, and I think you can see just how passionate, how much fun we have when we hunt together. You need to check it out. Anybody that's on YouTube, I've watched multiple hunts that Jerry has posted on there and uh, some of the stories that he shared uh, and some of the experiences are uh, maybe not specifics, but they're on there. Uh, and so check it out. It's definitely worth the time, the investment. We'll, we'll put the links uh, in, in the post as well. Uh, with that being said, I'd like to close in a, a quick word of prayer, uh, if that's all right. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this this day. Just thank you so much for Jerry. Um, just thank you for the the man that he is, and um, just uh, what he stands for, and just all that he's been able to accomplish in his life. Just thank you for the uh, just the opportunity that he's had to fulfill his dreams and uh, go around the world and and just pursue his passion and just all the people that he's lives he's been able to touch in that process. As you just continue to guide him and his family, just continue to be with them and. Uh, be with their health and just be with uh, their their journeys and their personal and professional lives, Lord. And we just thank you for that. Just thank you for all the listeners um, that we've uh, we've come across and the, just the different people that we've been able to um, connect with just through traditional bow hunting. I ask that you just continue to allow more opportunities in the future and just continue to just encourage somebody out there that um, is on the fence about trying something new, so that one day they they won't look back and regret that they they didn't try that. Uh, ask that you continue to keep us safe and healthy. Uh, thank you so much for all our many blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Jerry. We hope you have a good night. Oh, thanks for having me.